So uh, I'm at the top of the crag. This guy hands me three sticks of gel ignite wrapped together with an impact detonated fuse. Told me to stick it inside my boiler suit. <laughs> Abseil down the cliff, which was obviously loose, and uh, shove it in a hole. So I'm at the plunger of the detonator, man, and this crag just, it just went right across the lock. Welcome to Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. As always, I'll be your host, Lee Greenwood, and I'd like to say welcome to this episode. This week, I've uh, managed to track down Alan Forrest. For most people out there who work in the Arata world, they've most probably heard of Alan. You may have been assessed by him. You may have been involved at audits or consultancy with him. Alan is a long-serving Arata technician and runs around the world doing uh, various Arada stuff now, a lot of consultancy for Arada companies. Um, he's definitely kicked down quite a lot of doors in various regions around the world over the last sort of 25 plus years. So we're going to have a bit of a chat with him. One question has to be, um, how do you become a safety supervisor? Back when, uh, when Alan first got into it, he was being assessed and... The question was, do you want a third rope? Yes or no? Um, and I think that was uh, how you got through your two-day assessment to become a safety supervisor. So have a listen out for that one. So, uh, hi, Alan. Thanks for joining us, buddy. Hi, Lee. Thanks for inviting me on. No problem. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Um, obviously, you're uh, a bit of a known character in there, so we don't need any big introductions, but... Um, uh, I want to just sort of crack straight on with the first question. Uh, do you want to tell all the listeners um, how you got into rope access? Well, um, actually, my rope access goes back before Irata. Um I was a young climber, just fresh out of school in Thatcher's Britain, which is pretty much where we're going at the moment. I'll be back in 1983 when we first got paid for... Uh, paid for rope access. Not rope access as we'd recognise it right now, but... Uh, Nevertheless, hanging on a single dynamic rope on uh, roadside cliffs in the Highlands of Scotland. Um, and we were, well, with very basic equipment as well. And basically we were levering off rocks and blowing them up in a very unscientific method, uh, unscientific way. And that was the start of rope access for me. Actually, it was a friend of mine, Gordon Bizet, who you know. He, was a, he, uh, he went to the, the job centre, believe it or not, in 1983. And... On the board, there was a, a job for climbers required in the Isle of Skye. <laughs> so bear in mind, half the world was unemployed. That was a, uh, you could have asked for a better job advert. So we, uh, Gordon and a couple of others went up. I joined them a week later and uh, that was the beginnings of rope access as I knew it. Uh, moving on from there, we, uh, well, I was climbing uh, in Chamonix and the Alps and all that. Uh, my career path, I was going to be a alpine guide. That was my, my game plan in life. Um, so, yeah, I was basically on that. It was a long trail. There's a lot of stuff you got to do even to get on that scheme. So we were working away at that, doing our alpine seasons and all that. And uh, somebody at some point mentioned, would you would I like to work in an oil rig, you know? So I, never, I didn't even know what an oil rig was, to be honest. And uh, they, they explained and I didn't really, didn't really like the sound of that. And then they told us what they were going to pay us, and suddenly I was a bit more interested. So uh, I guess it was been about, uh, I don't know, 1989 or something like that. I went up to Aberdeen for an interview with Graham Burnett, dearly departed. 
and I got a job and I did my first offshore trip with Graham actually, which a lot of people don't know because obviously geographically we're quite different. But uh, that was that. That was with a company called EMI. So I worked with them for a couple of years and uh, always think it was going to end because when I, I I was never a level one or a level two. I was one of the original level threes uh, brought straight in from the mountains, basically, to act as riggers and rescue guys for the tradesmen who we were trading up. So, uh, yeah, I was kind of born a level three, if you like. <laughs> and um, there was never a plan, but it did seem to me, looking forward, as these tradesmen came up through the levels, one, two, three, the need for people like me would have been... Uh, well, we'd have been over quite quickly within a year or two once these guys got level three. But obviously that never happened. And we're still here 30 odd years later. Yeah, wow, that's uh, that's a pretty early introduction. I've spoken to a few guys about <clears throat> getting into the rope access and you were there sort of right at the beginning in those sort of early 80s. Um, swinging around, you said on a single dynamic rope. So was that you just turning up with your own climbing Climbing gear and um, yeah, it was pretty much. It was, it was quite. It was rock climbing technique, if you like, and uh, the, uh, the the whole like, rata system hadn't hadn't even been thought about or you contemplated at that point. It was just rock climbers hanging off, uh, let's say, roadside cliffs in the Highlands uh, near, well, on the road to Sky, <laughs> which is very romantic. Uh, well, just to give you an example of health and safety, if you like, see, I went up a, a week or so after Gordon. Gordon Ali Reid, do you know Ali? He's in Australia now. He was also there. Yep, yep, I do. Yeah, right. So uh, we, uh, yeah, so I went up a week behind them. We were all climbing friends. We're all we all been in the same schools climbing club in uh, in Lothian region, Edinburgh region. And uh, yeah, so I arrived about midday at the at the crag, and uh, <laughs> the the foreman who was from Sky, he wasn't a climber. He was a there's a public works contractor, I suppose. But anyway, they threw a harness at me, figure of eight, descender, and a jumar. And that was it. Uh, up to the top of the crag. Well, they gave me a boiler suit as well. Up to the top of the crag. Uh, chucked a rope over. Uh, the guys had been drilling all week. And now what they were doing was they were, they were stuffing these huge holes with gelignite. So they, I'd had no induction, by the way. <laughs> so uh, I'm at the top of the crag. This guy hands me three, you know, classic cartoon three sticks of gel ignite wrapped together with a cortex, which is an impact detonated fuse. Uh, all that sort of wrapped up in a bundle, told me to stick it inside my boiler suit, <laughs> abseil down the cliff, which was obviously loose, and uh, shove it in a hole. So <laughs> that was the that was the health and safety introduction to that job. I went and packed as much gel ignite as I could into this hole and various other holes. Then we all retired to what we thought was a safe distance and blew up the crag. But I say it wasn't very, very scientific. Um, these days, they use like micro micro charges just to pop little bits off. We basically drilled as many holes as we could and put as much gel ignite as we could in them. And uh, I say retired to a distance, and someone hit the plunger in the detonator. Man, and this crag just it just went right across the lock. You know, there was a we were at a lockside location. This thing travelled the whole crag travelled about a mile. And we got complaints from the other side about rocks landing people's gardens, etc. But anyway, I was only 18, so I wasn't responsible for any of that. <laughs> but uh, survived to tell the tale. Shame, uh, shame you didn't have the video cameras like they do today. You know, you see these uh, controlled explosions and uh, a little bit different to the one that you're talking about, though. 
you know, it wasn't very controlled, but yeah, it was just the way you could, it was the classic where the whole, you know, just a split second where the whole face detaches, you know, and yep. then just accelerates. A bit like the bomb, actually, in um, uh, Beirut recently, that kind of, you know, just the sudden rush of energy. But, uh, anyway, it was, but the good thing about that, is, of course, is we destabilized all the cliffs behind what we'd blown off, which kept us at work for the next few months. Self-generating <laughs> 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 our own employment, that should have been proud of us. Yeah, excellent, yeah. excellent. So that's pretty cool. And then you, um, so you said that you were sort of one of the original level threes. Um, you were offshore. So did you have one of these Q numbers that we keep hearing about? Yeah, I had a Q number, yeah. And the, the process was interesting, actually, because if you imagine, there was no, there was no training scheme. There was no assessors. Um, there was no syllabus. Uh, so what happened to me was, Myself and another chap, we were sent, after an interview with uh, Graham in Aberdeen, sent to the south shores of Loch Ness, <laughs> to a, again to a crag, uh, to meet this guy who was the vice, prin- vice principal of Glenmore Lodge, which is the, the National Mountaineering Centre based in Scotland. There's another one in Wales, but uh, Plassey Brennan, both of those do the UK. So, um, yeah, this guy was the vice principal, so uh, obviously up there, mountaineer and all that. And uh, the script was we're going to do a two-day assessment with this guy, which was just two to one. It was me and another chap, and this guy Roger O'Donovan, it was called. Since died also, unfortunately. Uh, the yeah, so the format was yeah, two-day assessment with no training <laughs> and no syllabus. So therefore, it was all a bit uh, mystical what was going to happen next. Uh, I think within an hour or an hour and a half, my companion. Had been thrown off. He had failed already. Uh, for, well, I'll tell you why he failed. If you want, he yeah. failed for. We went up to the top of this cliff. And this guy Roger had uh, the assessor had. Uh, uh, he'd set up a multi-point anchor. We're uncoiling ropes now. As a climber, you know you don't just take the you don't just take the binding off and drop the rope because you get a lot of tangles. This is what my companion did. He'd. Uh, basically un- uncoiled the rope in an unprofessional manner, which could have cost us vital minutes in a rescue. And that was the point. And then we'd also be, the, the, the critical point, which ended it for him, we'd been told that we were going to be safety supervisors. The, the, the term level three wasn't that prominent at that point. Safety, supervo- safe, uh, safety supervisor was used more. So then the question came, did we want a safety rope? Now, a safety rope would be the sort of thing, you know, you a secondary rope controlled by someone else like you'd use with Boy Scouts or something like that. So, yeah, the question is, do you want a safety rope? So me and the other guy looked at each other and, uh, you know, safety supervisor, safety rope, what's the call? So he said, yes, he wanted one. And I said, no, I'll be all right. <laughs> so he got thrown off at that point <laughs> for not being confident. So which left me with this guy, Roger Donovan, the vice principal of Glenmore Lodge, for a day and a half by myself with no syllabus and no training. Luckily, I was fresh back from Yosemite, so I was hot at the time, so no worries. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, so you choosing to go with a single rope got you to the supervisor level, so uh, things have changed a little well, bit. No, 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 no. We still had two ropes. We still had the Arata system at that point, okay. but the question was, did we want a third additional uh, safety rope was, was the question. Because um, the gear as well, so earlier that morning, uh, we'd arrived at the crag, with, the guy comes up, empties out this rucksack full of stuff, stops and shunts and all that business, 
And uh, we'd never seen any of that. As, as rock climbers, you know, stops were caving gear, shunt, you know, was surplus to requirements for most climbers. And um, he said, right, I'm going to go back to my car. I've got 10 minutes to learn how to use this stuff, you know. So in those days, Petzl equipment came in like a Ziploc bag with, uh, it was pre-computer, so it was like typewritten, photocopied instructions in there and really crude hand drawings. So yeah, we had 10 minutes to kind of <laughs> work out how a stop might be attached to a rope and a shunt and all that. So um, yeah, so that, that, that was our introduction to, to the equipment. Doesn't sound dissimilar to some of the assessments that I've done when uh, when I've had the Scottish assessors come down to uh, the south of England and all of a sudden I'm, uh, I'm confronted with uh, what they lovingly called the loop. This is something that we do in Scotland. And the, uh, that was the first time I ever saw it on my Level 3 assessment. That was uh, a good friend of yours. Willie, Willie Johnson threw that one at me on my Level 3 assessment. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I feel your pain. I definitely feel your pain. These things were just made up at the time. The loop, it's, I remember when the loop came in, it was just a sort of, let's try that. And, um, yeah, I mean, actually, Willie and I tried it the first time out. We ended up, both of us, hanging in the middle of it off one shunt. <laughs> so... <laughs> It didn't go too well the first time around. We realised it's best not to go into the loop to rescue the guy, you know. So you so you then thought you'd take it down south to get all those English guys to have a go at it, yeah? Was that pretty much the plan? Well, you know me. I'm an <laughs> internationally, you know, and I would never subject anything to you. I wouldn't subject to anyone else. But actually, there was a good connection there at that, that time. Because I remember, I think it was your level two ISS, um, the, the big connection between Webb and Charlie. And so it was a kind of, was a kind of Scottish uh, Kent connection at that point, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I remember it well. Uh, you know, everybody remembers their first assessment. You know, you're you're talking about your one, which was back in the sort of late eighties. Um, remembering the names and the places and what it was like, and you know, I could ramble on about my level one, level two, and level three. Um, I was lucky enough to get um, some of the legends from Scotland to uh, assess me on all three of them. So um, yeah, definitely cool. So you were um, so you're now uh, signed off as a safety supervisor by um, the vice principal yep. of uh, Glenmore Lodge, which I, I remember hang, hanging out in that place uh, many years ago as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you've gone offshore. What was uh, what was the reception like when you went offshore with this newfangled rope access thing? Well, I actually I went out to take over. You know, um, there was a job already running. So I went out as back-to-backs, and I I actually replaced Richard McCarty. He he was my back-to-back on on that job. Because, again, Richard, uh, coming from the mountains, et cetera, et cetera. Richard would have been a guide as well, of course. Um, And, yeah, so when I just walked into a team, that was all okay. Yeah, in terms of generally the reception, there was some some nasty stuff went on. I mean, um, I remember one tea break. It was just a tea break. We went away, left our ropes hanging, you know, on the job. Came back and they're all gone. They're on the sea, actually. Chucked, the whole lot had been chucked in the sea. Um, and then also, I remember early doors were in a big shutdown. So there's maybe about 500 guys there. And there was with three abseilers and 500 guys. And um, just walking into the, this enormous tea shack. Well, you know, it wasn't normal. It was a kind of special shutdown tea shack made, made for the purpose. So hundreds of guys in there. And um, they just all hissed as we came in, you know. I mean, bear in mind, I'm in my early 20s at that point, you know, fresh-faced youth. And these are all these sort of cutthroats, uh, <laughs> uh, hundreds of them hissing at us as we walked in the door of the tea shack. So uh, 
We weren't. Uh, well, basically, scafflers thought that was the end of them, but uh, obviously that wasn't the case. Uh, but yeah, it was fairly, it felt quite hostile at times. Um, not, but the nice thing about offshore is there's no physical violence, otherwise we'll all be dead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. yeah, that's uh, yeah. The scaffolders, I think they've uh, they've come around to realise that we can work together. A lot of them have sort of moved over to ropes, and they're doing you know. And I know a lot of ropeies that have got their scaff tickets for doing droppies and things like that offshore. So it's sort of all blended in. But I mean, our point was by the inspections we were doing, so we were finding jobs that would, for them that would never have been found. Because, if, you know, if we found defects, heavy-duty defects on legs, for example, you can't do them off ropes. So uh, they were a nice scaffolding job for the scaffolders. We also had, had some jobs cutting away uh, destroyed scaffolding, which had been destroyed by huge storms. Some fun jobs doing that. I mean, that was, well, these days, obviously, it would be recovered back on deck. In those days, we just ground it off into the sea. But, uh, yeah, but the damage caused by the sea on a huge scaffold obviously was a disadvantage for some of that too. So then uh, you've done your time there. What are you? You're sort of mid-20s now, I'm guessing. Um, is this where you've sort of got involved with Irata or, you know, that's been around sort of... Well, no, what happened was, yeah, so we, sorry, yeah, we were in the North Sea. Um, There's a few companies, EMI, Can, Rig Blast, Oceaneering. I think that was the four that were there. And uh, my recollection of what happened, and we're all we're all working in, in our own companies as level ones, twos, and threes, um, fairly parallel systems running, but they were parallel; they weren't the same system. One of the companies had it the other way around as well, which was three, two, and one, whereby one was the highest level. Which that was a bit confusing too. Anyway, at some point in those early days, uh, it was Shell actually, Shell, the oil company, who said, "Look, we'd rather deal with one system here rather than endless different systems." So that's what Shell that encouraged, uh, you know, the early bosses of these companies to get together, sit down and uh, work out a system, which was the birth of IRATA. Yeah. So it'd have been really, I don't know if these exist anymore, but somewhere John Fairley's old jotters uh, would document the very first meeting of that. Uh, I spoke to Graham about it before he died and he wasn't sure either. But uh, the, that's my understanding of what I'm, So basically Shell was responsible for the formation of IRATA. At that point, we were given, uh, I think we were, given, well, we were given these Q numbers that you mentioned, um, just on the subject of numbers, because everyone loves the subject of numbers. Um, I've always quote the 300 Club, because at that point, there's about 300 people working in these four companies offshore uh, and onshore, to, uh, for that matter, because there was, of course, all can can onshore thing going as well. Um, but everyone was given numbers alphabetically, you know, so... This is where people think like number one and number two made love and the rest of Irata was born, like some sort of Adam and Eve conception story. It's not really how it worked. So everybody who was in the system, whether they were level one, two or three, were given numbers alphabetically, which is why uh, Tim Allen, Sandy Allen are numbers two and three. And uh, people like myself at one, two, four, Stuart Finley at one, two, two, you know, there's all these Fs running through there. So yeah, it goes whoever Bart Wright was. That would be about the, the end of that. <laughs> the original, the original wave of Q numbers. Anyway, we're given a year to get rid of those and be assessed in, in this system in inverted commas. By then, there was kind of a system, but not nothing like you'd, <laughs> nothing like we have today, of course. But uh, there was a kind of standardised system of manoeuvres and equipment, and uh, which allowed. We were all very sceptical of this, of course. None of us. There was never a plan. We didn't really see a future in it. Um, as I said earlier, I just thought we were going to, you know, do a few trips, pay some debts off, get back to the mountains, forget ever, forget it ever happened. <laughs> you know, but uh, 
Yeah, it's not the case. So, uh, so you had to get assessed again to uh, to turn your queue number into a yeah, just get rid of, a three. Get, I'm guessing get rid of the queue. That was it. Yep. Yeah. So, I still, but my logbook so still where, carries a queue, and uh, you know, we deleted that, and it became three slash instead of queue slash. Or yep. And uh, so, where did you have to do the assessment, and how would they sort of come up with? who was going to be an assessor and that type of stuff. Were you involved in any of that? Good question. Um, we, I, I must have been assessed in Aberdeen. I don't actually remember how the, well, how the assessment would have gone, who, do, who would have assessed me. Uh, probably someone I knew. <laughs> and uh, I think you know assessors would have been early company managers, so even not necessarily that confident ropes themselves. A lot of them would have been, but some... Some would have just been there because they were like selecting personnel, I think, rather than being rope experts. You mentioned Sandy. Obviously, Sandy would have been right in there from the start um, on that. I'm sure you've chatted, he mentioned all that to you when, he, when you spoke to him. But uh, Sandy was in the position of being a, a company boss at that point, whereas I was just a, a worker on level three. Yeah, I had a bit of a, uh, a chat with, uh, with Sandy Allen and he sort of uh, gave us his interpretation and that's uh, that's what I think I'm uh, I'm getting here it's uh, trying to get a hundred stories together and try and find the truth in the middle of it all somewhere you know well yeah so it's like it's the origin story is a bit confused but I mean I, I, yeah, I'm pretty close to it and that's uh, that's what I'm to me <laughs> anyway yeah. yeah so then uh, so now you're uh, you're officially in Arata level three yeah uh, were you still offshore, or where was where were things taking you now into the into sort of the nineties? Well, I was offshore well into the nineties till um, mid nineties till you know mid to late nineties, moving in there. But there was a transitioning transition happening for me, I suppose. Um, interestingly, the there was no there was no training. There was no training companies. All, all the training was done in house often badly, by operator companies, yeah? So it really was hitting this. I mean, their idea of a trainer was at any level three who wasn't offshore, and really, you know, there was some pretty dreadful training going on. Um, A lot of good level threes, but they, well, either they couldn't be bothered because they were on their time off, or they weren't particularly gifted at training, or or rope access for that matter. Led to some pretty, you know, pretty dreadful... uh, training and assessment experiences but uh, again bring back Gordon into this again uh, Gordon and I somehow kind of drifted together for the web agency now in my mind the web agency was the first purely commercial training ever done uh, purely commercial training company which wasn't also an operator we'd kind of decided, well, maybe that could work, where you know, we could dedicate ourselves to excellence in training rather than training as a byproduct of um, operations. So I said I was a bit hesitant on that because I mean, Total Access were also doing training at that point, but they were also in their fingers and lots of other pies too. So um, certainly as far as the offshore industry in Scotland went, Web would have been the first purely commercial training. And where, you know, I would have been one of the first actual trainers, if you like. You know, because again, that didn't exist. That wasn't a thing that existed, really. Uh, we just declared ourselves trainers and took it from there. So, yeah, that's my understanding of that. So, you're now hanging out in this warehouse with a... Um, I've spoken to a few people that uh, trained there back in the early days uh, with this horrendously steep um, 
apex roof that you put a nice aid route up that people had to climb on. And uh, I believe the anchors were nicely spaced just long enough so you could reach them. Yeah, that's the stories that I've heard. Yeah, I did uh, some pretty gnarly head uh, climbing challenges. Uh, you know, hopefully I've still got some old photos of that. But yeah, I don't know if you know what a figure of four is, but it's, it's a it's a kind of dry tooling or rock climbing technique in some cases where your leg goes over your arm so you can reach further. But, you know, it wasn't quite that, but it was getting there. And uh, yeah, it, was, it became a it became a, a known challenge in the, again, still fairly small world of rope access training at that point. Yeah. And then um, having... Uh, Having head over to uh, Asia quite a lot in my sort of uh, time as a uh, trainer and an assessor, I then, I remember this in the early sort of 2000s, I seem to be uh, following in your footsteps. There seem to be a lot of uh, a lot of people that have been trained by the web agency in, in and around Asia, and I, I started to see your signature in a lot of people's logbooks. So how did you sort of end up heading in that direction? Well, as ever, there was never a plan. And I say for the whole, the whole 30 years of my career here, there's never been a plan. Um, it just kind of evolves. I mean, the whole international expansion was obviously down to the oil industry. Irata was becoming a kind of known, yeah, okay, it was still very fringe in the, as the as the oil, oil industry as a whole goes. But oil companies were beginning to hear, well, what did they do in Aberdeen about this? And, you know, they heard about Irata and, and so on. And, um, yeah, I was very lucky, you know, almost as like a, an explorer or pioneer in some of the, these areas. Been again, I'm happy to stand corrected, but uh, I did some of the first training in Singapore uh, with uh, you know, Joshua and Caleb, those brothers. Um, and I do, yes. Now, who's the Australian guy who's the um, partner of Nick Colmey at K2? Oh, yeah, Dave. He's back in Australia. I've got a, a friend of mine actually caught up with him uh, about six months ago. Yeah, he's back here surfing. Well, anyway, I trained him for his level one in Singapore, you know. So, and Nick Conway would have just been arriving at that point. Yeah, so I mean, early, very early training there, very early training in South Africa as well. Um, and not Brazil, in America a bit. And yeah, various oil outposts and, uh, you know, but Sarawak as well. That was quite early. That, Sarawak and Brunei, they were quite early um, in that whole bit. Again, I was often the first or pretty close to the first person there um, with with uh, training, really, and uh, bringing over other people who were assessors. Uh, so, yeah, it was all quite exciting. I was lucky to go through that phase. You know, it, was, uh, it felt uh, interesting and exciting at the time. Yeah, definitely. I've, uh, yeah, I think it's up in Miri in Sarawak where I first saw your signatures appearing in books and uh, there was all these locals talking about this uh crazy long-haired Scotsman who had come over and trained them three or four years previous. So uh, it was quite easy to put two and two together and work out who that was. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a great trip. We did a, I think I did a six-week training program there. I don't know how many guys that works out as, but uh, we did six weeks. Tra- so five five separate courses back-to-back and then a, a refresher week for, you know, for the, those five courses. So, uh, and then the assessor came and did five days assessment that's obviously how it was done in those days yeah flying the assessor in for back-to-back assessments yeah all uh, all changed a bit since then and um so at this stage so what are we now i'm sort of trying to do a timeline on this we're sort of late 90s coming into 2000 uh obviously you're an 
uh, a well-established assessor by this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't remember the date. I don't have a date of that. I can remember. Yeah, yeah, it would have been. Was that a uh, was that a sort of Alan? Would you like to be an assessor, or was that a process you had to go through? How was it working back in those days? Well, I actually remember driving up to. A couple of years before I became an assessor, I was I was driving up to Aberdeen to, to have an assessor's test. But again, there was no information, no, no syllabus, no nothing. And, uh, you know, kind of on the way up, I got cold feet. I thought, well, I can't do that. I have no idea what even they want me to do. So I actually turned back and didn't go to it. That was, um, in retrospect, it would have been a breeze. But uh, the, so it was a couple of years later and... Uh, I'm not sure. It wasn't that hard to get on. There was nothing like you have to, yeah, hoops like you have to jump now. But um, obviously, my background to that point had been idea of being a prolific trainer by that point. And then the uh, the assessor thing was a natural you know, progression from there. I was probably more ready for it anyway. But a couple of years later, when I did it, eventually do it and again. I don't particularly remember what we did, but uh, uh, nothing like the uh, the poor people now where they have to go through. Yeah, there's uh, obviously they've got processes in place now and everything. You know, I think I was uh, one of the sort of last guys to come through the old process of, um, you know, your name gets put forward. And then uh, I had to do a um, a thorough level three assessment, I think was the words that were used by Carl Raby and Mark Wright. Um, that was back in... 2004 I think uh, Mark was the training chairman at the time and he was over in Australia and it was basically do it do everything that they had on the syllabus and then they'd make some stuff up and we'd keep going from there Um, and then I had to assess some candidates I actually went up to had to go to Singapore because I needed two assessors to be present that's right and so that was up in um, Singapore with Nick Conway who you've already mentioned and uh, and Carl Raby again that was the only place i think carl was on his way out to brunei to go and work on a platform so we managed to line that up yeah um and yeah that that was a process then and then pretty much a year or so after that it all changed they introduced courses i think that process was okay but you know it's also not very scientific and open to nepotism but it was a good process was good enough yeah because not everyone can be an assessor unfortunately that's uh although they want to be but um it, look, it looks really easy when you're sitting there as a trainer, uh, watching an assessor who, who's who's good at their craft do it, and then you go, how hard can that be? And then, you know, you see guys coming through the courses and they sort of realise, yeah, there's a bit more to it than just ticking a few boxes and asking some people to do go through some manoeuvres. No, no, even even now I get guys, you know, I'll spend a couple of years with them as they're the trainers and they moan about assessors all, all through the whole assessment. More about this, more about that, and then when they actually become assessors themselves, <laughs> a different story. Yeah, so yeah, it's not it's not uh, quite as easy as people think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So you've uh, you've run around Asia, you've been in South Africa, training the whole world how to do this rope access thing that supposedly was only going to last you a year before you trained up enough tradies, um, and now. Where's it go from there? Are you back in Scotland? Are you are you training? Is he, are you at the web? What's what happened there? Uh, I guess two thousand right. So I suppose the nineties was the web for me, um, and then early two thousand, I well North Sea Lifting. There was a company called North Sea Lifting, which doesn't exist anymore. They were sold to someone, 
Uh, North Sea lifting had the the rigging bible for the North Sea and the small the rigging lifting international rigging lifting handbook, which everybody had, everybody wanted. That was the the rigging and lifting bible. Yeah? So, in my wisdom, I thought it'd be a good idea to approach them and tell them I could write the International Working at Height Handbook as a companion volume to that, which I did, and that would have been in 2000. So I guess that's kicking around still. Um, I've not got my name in it anymore, but, uh, and it's probably changed out of all recognition, but 2001, the first edition of that was published, and I was working with I uh, I still have a copy sitting on, uh, on the shelf at the training centre. I think I stole it off of you when you... Came over to Australia yeah. on your uh, <laughs> on your uh, legendary book tour. Yeah, <laughs> well, the um, yeah, but it was pretty well received. Actually, basically, my idea was because every week as a trainer, as you know, you write the same old stuff down on the, the whiteboard, you know, and you you, know, you you get tired of listening to yourself after a while. So basically, what I stuck in that book was everything on a weekly basis. I'd, stick on the whiteboard for level ones, twos and threes, depending depending uh, who we were training at the time. So yeah, it was fairly well received. But the great thing for me was, because it was early computer days as well, I didn't really have much of a clue. But uh, Norsey Lifting sat me down beside this graphics guy, a guy called Billy Lamont, a really skilled guy. And uh, my, my first question to test him, if you like, was I gave him a pixel diagram and you know, a couple of other bits of gear that I wanted on that diagram, and you know, within seconds, in a flurry of fingers, he'd uh, he'd uh, changed this this uh, this drawing into something exactly what I had in my mind. So it was great. I knew that was going to go well because uh, he he was superb with the graphics, and he did the whole layout of the book. And there's a lot of a lot of pictures in there that look like pencil pictures, but actually they're not. They're either adaptations of pencil pictures or they're photographs that I took, which were then illustrated in a pencil style by a, a really good illustrator. And then doctored up by Billy to, to make it all look seamlessly nice. Yeah, so that was uh, that was an eye opener as far as graphics and all that went. Yeah, yeah well, that's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, as I say, I've still got a copy of that book, um, yeah. and it I pull it out every now and then when people are talking about things that they've just discovered and or they've just invented. Oh yeah, I've just found this new thing, and they go, "Hold on, I've got a book." Um, yeah, is that what you're talking about? And I'm showing them a book from the 2000s, and obviously. A lot of that stuff was what you were teaching through the nineties as well. So. Yeah, obviously yeah, outdated by now. Well, uh, well, can I, I can actually tell you a funny story about that book if you'd like, since we're having a chat. <clears throat> but, um, Definitely, not so long ago. Uh, let's see, where are we now? Say maybe two thousand and teens somewhere. There was an accident in Holland. Uh, one of the one of their rat companies they had a trading accident, <clears throat> and um, basically it was two IDs and two shunts were involved. It was still in the shunt days. It was still when the shunt wars were in their full in, in full height. You know, the, the shunt wars, as we'll call them. But uh, the Dutch uh, HSE Harbo, they decided to prosecute the company for, and what they went for was use of uh, use of the shunt because there'd been a lot of noise about that. Obviously, the Harbo didn't know anything technically really about that. But uh, ASAPs had just come out, so you could date it from there. I don't know, two thousand thirteen maybe. And uh, anyway, so they got prosecuted, they got fined. I won't mention the company's name, a good company, it just wasn't their fault. And to me, it seemed that it was two, two level ones, two IDs and two shunts, and the whole lot hit the floor and they broke four ankles. So um, to me, it seemed like, okay, the shunts didn't catch them or the shunt didn't catch them, but uh, 
the, to me, it seemed like earlier in the process, the IDs had failed to operate in some way. Anyway, so we, yeah, they got prosecuted, they got fined, but then they appealed and they called me over for the appeal in, in, in Holland. Now, this is the great thing because we're at the court in The Hague. So I like to make that the International Criminal criminal Court in The Hague. It sounds not quite as grand as that, but anyway, we were, we were at the court in The Hague. And uh, I'm sitting there with some some uh, rope access friends behind me from the company. And uh, on the other, this is in front of the judge. And then at the other table uh, is the prosecution of the Arbos expert. Um, and he looked like a real beardy expert, if you know what I mean. And he had a stack of uh, stack of literature in front of him, you know, like piles of like standards and oh, directives, this, that, and it, catalogues, you name it. I mean, he, was, he was well armed with information. I, I of course, had nothing. And uh, anyway, this, the whole process had been run in Dutch, Klingon, as I like to call it. But uh, at some point in this process, the guys get the the the, the Arbo, the, the health and safety expert uh, from the government. He's getting really excited, and uh, he, he goes to his pile of books, rummages through it, and starts rummaging through this volume. And uh, attracts, you know, gives the reference to the judge. The judge also looks at this. I just leaned over to my our lawyer and said, that's my book he's quoting here. <laughs> so uh, that was it. Um, our lawyer st- just stopped him in his tracks and said, uh, excuse me, uh, the, the, their expert is reading from our expert's book. Case closed, we won. <laughs> so that was it. Excellent. Yeah, that's uh, that's an awesome little, uh, little story there. So... Um... That winter spent uh, in Scotland writing that that book obviously paid off years later. So uh, yeah, yeah, and, and um, I was I was paid to write it. I, I don't own it, so uh, that's that's the unfortunate thing about. Well, I guess you've been paid to write a few things yourself, as far as a writer goes. And all that hard work belongs yep. to someone else. Yeah, and then uh, and then a few a few generations on, you know, they've uh, rewritten it, and your name is the first thing that vanishes out the front of it. Yeah, of course, because I worked, I worked with Norsey Lifting until 2004, and uh, so four years with them, which was nice, great, good, very good company they were. But they were very much a rigging lifting company, and rope access and working at height was always going to be the poor, the poor cousin. And so uh, after that, I decided to have my own, try my own company. Um, so that started January 2005, Fall Factor Zero. And I'm still here trading as that, and I had my own Arata Trading Centre. Um, in Edinburgh for a number of years, and um, that was all fine. Still travelling a bit amongst that, but you know, focusing on the my own domestic trading. It's the first time I kind of owned my own company outright. We'd been directors of the web, but we didn't own it, um, and that all went well. But I kind of uh, lost the building, and uh, you know, as you'll be familiar, many of people listening will be familiar who have trading companies. If you don't own the building, it's uh, Spend a lot of time setting up, and just to lose it, it's a bit disheartening. So, having thought about it, I decided I wasn't going to restart another one because actually, I'd, this is a, probably a bit political, but uh, the, the profit is kind of vanishing out of rope access training. I mean, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And my, you know, the old phrase, a race to the bottom, uh, is springs to mind because even then, this is like uh, 2010s, I suppose. I stopped training. Um, my turnover obviously went down, but my profit went up. So because I was able to dedicate myself more efficiently to uh, more profitable activities, you know, so it's just it's a, the nature of the beast. 
No, definitely you mentioning the the race to the bottom. Uh, I know in the, the UK when I did my level one back in, when was that, 98? I think a course costs £500. And I know there's companies advertising at the moment you can still do the same course, um, you know, 20 odd years later for £500. So, um, so a special offer I'm last assuming, year for £375, man. Can you believe it? Well, I should have taken that one up in 1998 instead, but yeah, wow, yeah. Mm, yeah, so, well, you know, whatever you think about that is, and, and the other worrying thing is there the people who are, can afford to do that are not, I mean, in my mind, there's two types of companies. There's actual genuine rope access companies staffed by genuine rope access people. And then there's a lot of big companies with a rope access carbuncle tacked on the side. Now, they can afford to go in cheap and cut the, you know, just thrash the competition. So what we could end up with is a a completely uh, a field that is populated by very few actual rope access people and just uh, large industrial providers, which would not be a good thing, in my opinion. No, I'd agree with you there. You know, you need need the passion still in there, I think, for the the training, passion for the crafts. It's the lack of passion. It's... Yeah, just a pedestrian delivery of some manoeuvres. And the other, the other bugbear, which I'm sure you have too, is as an auditor, is um, the the variable quality of training centres, you know. I mean, as an auditor, I, I audit and pass training centres, which I don't really rate, you know, but they tick the boxes, you know. I, I'd like to see some sort of star system in place, so whereby the, the people who have put in the effort and the money and the expertise to, to, to produce a good training centre, they are somehow credited for that. And uh, not all training centres are equal, as we know. You know, and uh, I would like to somehow see that addressed. Yeah, well, I definitely agree. You know, I um, I don't know how you do it. Whether it's a, a even a square meterage or a, a volume, you know, how high it is compared to you know how much. No, but I've seen big buildings too and nothing though. Yep. You know, it's just, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard judgment to make. And, you know, it's, it's probably impossible to do in a transparent procedural way. If it ticks the boxes, it ticks the boxes, you know. And um, as, obviously, as people progress through the system into level two and level three, they hear, you know, through the grapevine, where are the good places, where are places to completely avoid. With a massive block of level ones, new level ones, they've no idea. They just go wherever's cheap or geographically handy. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's whichever is cost effective, you know, that they don't have to travel, they don't have to pay for digs and things like that can be part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about the auditing, obviously that's something you've been involved in in a, yeah. for quite a while. Um, you're one of the old guard there, um, being one of the – or a group of the original guys who were out there doing it, um, from what I understand. Being... That was a funny that was a funny beginning. That really was an irata meeting. Who wants to be an auditor? Nobody was keen. <laughs> so it was like, well, somebody has to be. So I kind of reluctantly put on my hand. And that was that process. Yeah, <laughs> That was the process to become an auditor at that point. So a, a little bit easier than your, your original day and a half um, um, assessment that you had all those years previous. So now you're... Two days assessment. It was only the day and a half by myself with the guy because we'd lost we'd lost the other guy being killed off early. Yeah. So sorry, Alan. Yeah, two two whole days. Yep. Okay. I'll uh, I'll make sure we've got that in the show notes. Definitely, so everybody knows that. 
that when people are complaining about an eight and a half hour assessment that they're getting, you can, uh, I'll refer them to you and yeah, they can yeah, hear about you too. Eight and a half hour assessment they've been trained in and they have a syllabus for. So <laughs> that's always handy to know what you're doing before you start doing it. So the full factor zero training center, the building's gone. You're now auditing and I believe you're doing quite a lot of uh, consultancy stuff for yeah. people. Yeah. I do, th- I do three. I basically do three things. Well, at that point, actually, when the, the, I stopped the training centre, I kind of reevaluated everything. And because I, I used to do things like rigging, lifting, training, and confined spaces, and work at height, all the usual stuff. And I decided, right, okay, I'm just going to be a one man band, and I'm going to focus on one thing, which was erratic. So actually, I was also a sprat a set evaluator at the time as well. So I'd be fingering lots of pies, and I decided for one one person, the myerata activities were more than enough. So. Uh, yeah, assessor, auditor, and consultant. Of yeah, again, I, I think I was probably the first consultant. Um, to, to and the process for that was, or still is actually, put your hand up and say you're a consultant. If no one disagrees with you, then you are one. You know. So, but again, I mean, a lot of, in terms of consultancy, most of what I do is actually I just sell documents. The majority of what I do, since in that sense, more like a bookshop. Uh, the actual full consultancy do, consultancies I do are not too many because it's quite an expensive process to actually go somewhere and spend a week with someone thrashing it all out. My my idea is that they've got a level, they've got level threes, technical authority, whatever they have, and that person should be able to, if, if they're expert enough and genuinely expert enough, should be able to take my documents, read them, understand them, implement them, and get on with it. That's my philosophy. You know, some, some people sometimes, oh, you shouldn't be selling people documents that don't know what they're doing. But you know, if they don't know what they, if they don't know what they're doing, they'll, they'll fail the audit. Is my would be my uh, counter to that. And so, yeah, the basically I give them the instruction book if if you like, and then they sink or swim with that. In the majority of cases, that's what happens. Um, I do do occasional remedial consultancy for people who've really gone <laughs> left the path somehow. Um, and yeah, so that's that's as far as that goes. My my opinion on countering the you know you're selling them documents and. Uh that they don't understand. Uh, the other option is that they start writing their own documents that they don't even know how to write. At least they've got a, a decent starting point. Um, having audited companies and seen your documentation being adapted, you know, it gives them, you know, it's it's easy. It's important. Yeah, it gives them a starting spot. You know, it's easier to do that than it is with a blank piece of paper in front of you and some big companies saying, oh, we want to become an IRATA member and you're a level mm-hmm. three, so make it happen. Well, again, it's, I go back to my point about genuine rope access companies and, you know, the larger companies with small rope access departments tacked on the edge somewhere they don't care about. But, uh, yeah, I'm quite happy with, with doing that. The, um, you know, to, to anyone who has criticised me for that, I just say, well, you shouldn't be selling the equipment either. You know, it's the uh, same story. If they can buy the equipment, they can buy the instructions, and then they just have to go to the... Uh, you know, they have to find someone who's expert enough to implement the process, which I think is probably stronger than me going there and schooling the guy into how to implement the process. They should be able to pick up the documents, understand them sufficiently to know what it's on about and implement the contents. Yeah, definitely. That's my thinking on that. Oh, I, I, I agree with you on that one. I've uh, I've been doing some, uh, some background uh, stat collecting on this and... The numbers that I've sort of got out of uh, from various sources, I think that your documents or you personally being involved with 
somewhere between 20 and 25% of the ORATA membership yeah. is the sort of stats that I'm seeing. Um, a lot of it I know is in Europe. Uh, I've actually had people quote that if it wasn't for Alan Forrest, ORATA wouldn't be in Eastern Europe. So uh, you've definitely... Um, I don't know. Yeah, people say go on about Eastern Europe. But I mean, as, as we discussed earlier, you know, Asia, Australia, South Africa, all of these places, early doors, would have been uh, early contacts for all that. You know, there wasn't the audit process back then, but just schooling the companies to get in, you know, into a general alignment was uh, certainly not just Eastern Europe. But yeah, I mean, I've been involved in Eastern Europe since 20 years. Um, with uh, well, solo initially, and they they basically spread from there. They spread out from there, and I still have a good relationship with uh, the Cantor family at Solo. Our twenty-year anniversary. And she, my daughter, my youngest daughter, was twenty-one the other day, and she had her first birthday in uh, in Romania, which is where my van is residing at the moment as well. <laughs> so, yeah. so, if anybody's in Romania and fancies a road trip to the UK, um, there may be a, an option to jump in a van. I'm not sure if you've. Uh, Change the sheet since you were in it last, but you know, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the wheels are on it. Who knows? I'm sure you've got somebody keeping an eye on it for you. Well, it's, it's been stewing away over sun and rain and snow in that car park since uh, since my return from my Turkish road trip back in like this December or something. So it should be pretty ripe in there, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it's uh, it seems to be a regular conversation I'm having with uh, these mountain types who have uh, gone for road trips because uh, Sandy Allen mentioned to me that he's he had a car sitting down in Chamonix um, that luckily didn't have any parking tickets on it but he was trying to do some sort of mission to to get that back to the UK as well so yeah seems- yeah me me being a dedicated Iraqi professional I'm hoping to do some jobs on the way back but I don't <laughs> know how, how, you got to pay for the I don't know how realistic all, all this is at the moment. yeah got to pay for the fuel somehow so um so, with the uh, with the consultancy stuff, I've also seen that you're uh, you're now doing stuff over in Russia. Is that somewhere that you've headed as well? Well, no, Russia was interesting because, in many ways, well, I was. It's uh, not the moment, but uh, well, I suppose I am. Uh, the um, Russia was, to, to, in my mind, was the last great frontier for Arata. It still is, actually. The whole it, we've just scratched the surface, really, but. Um, yeah, I was contacted by this training company in Moscow. Now, not just any training company. They'd been, I think they're partly half owned by Moscow City. So, I mean, there'd been a, a technical training college of the Soviet state, I guess. I mean, they had about, I don't know, they quoted some figure like 60,000 people a year went through their doors for all types of, you know, everything from forklift training, pipework training, you name it. And they contacted me and I went over there for a meeting, you know, the Russian process is, is very, uh, very bureaucratic. So I, I went for a meeting and then we discussed it and then went back to do some direct entry training, which I did 10 days training with uh, eight uh, Russian. They're all, they were all genuine. They're from all over Russia, actually, genuine professionals, genuine uh, instructors. Many of them had been for like 25, 30 years, some of them, the older guys. Uh, and Russia has a long history of rope access, just not, uh, just not with Iraq. So they're, they're, justifiably proud of their their history in rope access and as you may have noticed they're normally either the winners or close runners up of the petzl rope trips as well even although they're not errata so there's more to rope access than just errata um so yeah they've got some really skilled professionals there and 
uh, yes, there was training run run there for a few years. Um, that the the management changed or something, and they decided they don't want anything more to do with foreigners and foreign systems. So that was closed. But I do have involvement still with uh, consultancy documents to Sakhalin, the oil industry. And um, yeah, so from that original group, the only person that I actually have any dealings with still is uh, uh, one of the guys has a training operation down in um, Baku in Azerbaijan, which I sometimes go for assessments there. So yeah, there's still uh, plenty to play for in Russia, but uh, the you know the Russians have their own perfectly good system as far as they're concerned. Not that much English spoken, so again for the Arati, you need good English really, I suppose, to well, to travel with the enemy, and it's expensive the way the economy is just now. Yeah, definitely. Um, but you know, it's uh, it's interesting to see that you know they've still developed uh, this really good system. You know, I've seen a lot of the stuff that they do. Um, having seen the uh, the Petzl rope trip and uh, and those guys getting on the podium, as you said, on a regular basis um, mm-hmm. and being in a sort of completely separate system. So that's been great to see. So with um, with all of this, what have we got? Um, 40-something-odd years, I'm guessing, we're around there, um, travelling from sunny Scotland offshore, working on cliff faces on a dynamic rope, uh, running around Asia, South America, Australia, Russia, US, wherever else you may have been, all on the back of this um, hanging on a rope that you thought was going to be, you know, maybe see you a season or two before you went back to the mountains. What would you say has been the, the best job or jobs you've uh, you've done in all of that time and, and why, obviously? Well, I thought about this, it was hard, but really I kind of have to, you know, split it all into categories if you like you know whereas the first the first jobs on the, the rocks and the highlands of a single dynamic rope um, as an onshore primitive experience that was great we enjoyed that we had a great time and as all your other uh, interviewees have said uh, people and location are so important you know it's, all, all of these all, all of my jobs certainly have been run in a in a way that have been memorable <laughs> so yeah the, the highland stuff was great miserable often but uh Great fun, you know. We were young, just levering off tonnages of rock onto onto the road and blowing things up. Great stuff. The whole offshore experience from the sort of uh, early hostile days, which you mentioned, uh, it's interesting. Those early days actually, we were such a novelty. We used to get to sit at the OIM, the offshore manager's table, for dinner because we were such a novelty. But I think some of us went too far in uh, giving wild stories from the mountains. So uh, they decided we were maybe a bit lunatic fringe and we were pushed off that table. And uh, yes, yeah, so rope access, going for those days, has been extremely specialised activity to being pretty much mainstream offshore now. But, you know, some great, great jobs offshore. Big boys, Meccano. You know, I, I particularly enjoyed the, the rigging, rigging jobs, construction rigging, basically. Those are all great jobs from an interest point of view. Um Nobody likes to get covered in grit and paint and grease, but I've done plenty of that as well. And, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe not the most glamorous, but again, can be perfectly good fun. Onshore, post-Irata, I mean, I did a few nice jobs. I did the fourth rail bridge, actually, the the original baseline survey for that, for the first painting job. Well, we did the survey prior to the painting job, but it was the first time it had been painted for... Since the 70s, and they used to just what well, used to be a phrase in English, it's like painting the fourth, the fourth rail bridge where you get to the end and start again in the beginning. 
So, uh, but anyway, they, they, they stopped that in the early 80s again due to the, the economy at the time. But wound up a whole lot more problems as a result of that. So we did a, a large, well, we, we surveyed every single member on that uh, on that bridge, which if you know the fourth rail bridge is a fairly, definitely an iconic structure. Uh, first, there's many firsts involved in, in, the, in the construction of that thing. Um, that's a whole different subject. Whole, subject a whole new podcast for you, I'm sure. But, uh, so that was a great job. Anyway, we were on there for months. To uh, it's got it has its own microclimate as well. So through winter and summer and uh, internal, external, all over that thing. Great, great bridge to work on. And nice and interesting people we worked with as well. Um, the training and travelling and assessments have all been amazing. I mean. I mentioned that, you know, some of the larger, longer training programs I did in unusual places at the time. Sarawak was great. Um, I did one in Zimbabwe in 1999, which was also very memorable. Uh, a bunch of guys there, I had a huge team there, and uh, we trained, uh, I don't know, 10 days with those. And the guys were, uh, one of them who became a level three, he sent me photographs of him laybacking up a drain pipe on a skyscraper with no ropes, just in his shorts and his bare feet. You know the layback technique from climbing. I do, I do. So me, yeah, so he sent me the his miles up. He's, he sent me this beautiful letter explaining how if it hadn't been for me and my training, he'd be dead now. And blah blah. blah. It was just a lovely letter the guy sent us. That's still one of my prized possessions. That that letter I got and the photos that came with it. I got from that guy. Uh, so yeah, we had a training program there in Zimbabwe before before that Zimbabwe all got. I think it was two thousand that Mugabe turned the screws and all got a bit nasty again. Yep. So we were lucky to get in there. And of course, there's always the, the side benefits because the guys we're working with in, in Zimbabwe, they also were involved with the bungee, the Kiwis on the bungee up at uh, Victoria Falls, and they were involved with the river rafting people. So after we'd done all that, we went up there and uh, had a blast doing that. Um, traveling, well, and I suppose then maybe 10 years ago, traveling with my daughter was great as well, and, and traveling quite a bit traveling with her she's she became a level three um and uh so traveling with her was did some joint training programs in brazil and italy and some other places which is really nice you're traveling your daughter in her mid-20s as i told her when she was mourning at me at the time uh you know it's unusual to be able to travel with your dad and work at the same time at this age you know she'll uh, she'll look back on it fondly at some point maybe not at the time when i'm snoring and farting in the bedroom with her but, <laughs> but you know it's uh Good memories, anyway. Excellent. Um, yeah, well, I'll see. Yeah, so the individual jobs been. I don't, it's all just one big mess in my head, actually, the whole thing. But uh, that's that's going to be just splitting it apart into categories. That's that's how I felt that uh, best went. I did do some Irata um, admin time. I was twelve years in the executive, and I did two or three years as training chairman. I don't know exactly. I don't remember exactly how long, but uh, prior to Mark, I think. Um, I was training chairman for a while. I uh, I can put a bit of um, context on that because I remember when you um, I'd just come over to Australia in 2000, and that was when you came over and you at the time you were training chairman, and there was a meeting that's, held that's at, um, total height safety. Yeah, there was a meeting of all the ro- local rope access people, and there was a ARAA representatives there and. Our representatives and you came in. Um, <laughs> my 
that's my imperial imperial rope access trade. That's the joke I gave from my van. And uh, did you did you see that the, the video I gave? I did. I did. Yeah. That has been burnt into my uh, into my memory. Well, you actually know the meeting? I I just said some meeting somewhere. I knew it was in Sydney, but. Uh, you know exactly the detail. I have to get that off you sometime because uh, it fills out my anecdote a bit better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, I remember that, and you were training chairman at the time. And then, as you said, Mark Wright uh, sort of took on the poison chalice yeah. after you. Uh, I think he did about um, maybe six, six or eight years. I think he did there, and then uh, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty easy job when I did it. I mean, it wasn't a controversial job when I. Did. And it was fairly easy. Um, in fact, the training committee at that time was, was the strongest committee in Arata by far. Um, and through Mark's time as well, into yours as well. But they, it's kind of been pushed back in the back burner now, the training committee, it seems. Yeah, it's all um, it's all changing in uh, with the Arata, how things are run and the processes with ISO standards being looked at and things like that. There's, um, you know, we need a process rather than uh, letting the the crazy people who have been voted into these committees making the decision. So we have to be consistent, I think, is what they're after. I, you know, I agree. You know, certainly the size that has got to, we need process and consistency, but that shouldn't be to the the detriment of all else because it's, uh, it's quite clearly documented in other walks of life. You know, if you just rely on process with no ability to uh, adapt, then the whole thing can be detrimental. To the, to, it can be self uh, self-deprecating hope. The, the process of process can kill itself. <laughs> yeah, know? definitely. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, mm. But there's, uh, having, uh, I'm still sitting on the training committee, there's still the same passion there was, I'm sure, back in your day. You know, there's the uh, the big mm. discussions and things like that, so it's always good to see. Yeah, it's always good. You know, it's a good place for arguments. Say the, the shunt wars that were mentioned earlier, that was a good period with the uh, Mark and <laughs> Mark and myself on opposite sides of that one, and uh, I, yeah. I think I'll be quoting that uh, that term uh, for years to come. Yes, I uh, I remember sitting on the fringes watching that um, <laughs> that go on with the different camps of what was going to happen, and uh, and here we are, however many years on, and there's still people out there using a shunt as a backup device. So you know, yeah, which yeah, unless you're expert enough to do so. Not a good idea. Yeah, I gave up on the argument a long time ago. It's a uh, it's a brilliant rope grab. I I still use one as a rope grab for hanging things off or lifting things on. But you know, you know, I believe my personal opinion. It's still got a place uh, on my harness, definitely. But you know, there's there's better options for uh, for backup devices, definitely. Sure, but uh, yeah, okay, that's uh, I totally accept that. But the Equipment in general, you know, it is expert equipment for expert use, and we can't legislate for nuggets, you know, and the, it's only as safe as the, the people who are handling it, anyway, you know, and uh, it's all defeatable somehow, you know, so it's a uh, false sense of security and some of the equipment is not to be encouraged. Yep, definitely agree with that. So I think that nicely brings me on to my, uh, my favourite question. So I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna organise a DeLorean from Back to the Future. We're gonna take you back in time, back to that 1983, 18 year old sitting there in Thatcher's Britain, um, trying to earn a crust, swinging on a dynamic rope off the side of a cliff face. So, what piece of advice, if 18 year old Alan would listen to some hairy old 50 odd year old bloke wandering up to him, trying to give him a piece of advice? What piece of advice would you give yourself? Yeah, right. Okay, a difficult one. Well, I thought about this one week and uh, 
my pretty much my philosophy with all of this is to try not to look back and not to regret. You know, I think life in general, you you, know, you make your choices and you suffer the consequences, as it were. I mean, there's many things I could say. I mean, I, I was uh, I was married when I was 20. I had my first child when I was 21. Now, conventionally speaking, that's probably not the sensible thing to do, <laughs> but because that was before I had a job either. Um, or any qualifications. Irata hadn't been invented. I didn't have a driving license. I lived in the Highlands in a caravan, pulling rocks off, pulling rocks off uh, Highland roadside cliffs seasonally, planting trees seasonally. Yeah, people would say then maybe I wasn't ready to get married and have children, <laughs> and uh, maybe my wife and children would agree. But uh, the the fact is, there's no point in second guessing yourself. You know, if you and as far as Iraq goes, I certainly couldn't answer that question because my job has just evolved. But there was never a plan. Iraq never had a plan. Iraq never had a plan for world domination. It just happened. You know, people think we're acquisitive super marketeers that run around uh, you know, trying to achieve this position of world domination. I mean, I've never felt like that. And it's in my time, it was never the case. In fact, people were begging us to come rather than us sort of landing on the beachhead. Um, and, you know, out of all that mess, I made my own job. You know, as I say, I was an early trainer, an early traveler, an early consultant, an early this, that, and the next thing. So I've made, I've made my own job within the chaos that was emergent errata. Um And, you know, I, conventionally, as I say, I could go back and, wait till I had a good solid job and earning nicely before I got married and had children, blah, 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 you know. But I've, I really, I, I hate to live in the past and I definitely don't like to look back and, and regret anything. Um, my mum still asks me when I'm going to get a proper job. <laughs> you know, so that's, uh, that kind of sums it up for me. You know? <laughs> well, on the plus side, at least you didn't end up being a dirtbag climber hanging out in Chamonix um, or maybe, well, maybe you did. <laughs> I, hang, I hanker for that in some ways well, that's part of my road trip to Turkey like through the winter to go back to that a little bit but uh, realistically you know the, what we were doing back in those early days we've been lucky to survive to tell the tale you know yeah. many many didn't you know, so um, maybe it was just fate that I was pulled down the Sarata route and married with children early so therefore I had to work um, I didn't have a choice you know so yeah, but it's been a it's been a blast. It's been a a long, strange trip, as they say. Yeah, it looks like uh, walking in there with no plan has uh, has worked out quite well for you. You say you've sort of pioneered your own job. You've created your own, you know, being one of the first trainers out there with a training company. You know, as you said, the first consultants um, traveling around the world, um, going to these. You know, you like the true adventurer going to these areas that um, you know are interested in what Arata is and you're willing to go in there and whether it's training them or educating them on the system or making sure the uh, the bloke sitting over the other side of the courtroom has got a copy of your book there so he can quote it at the, at the <laughs> crucial moment. You know, the, all of these uh, amazing journeys and adventures that you've had along the way, I think that's, to me, that's the best bit about rope access. Yeah, and all the great people I've met, including yourself, of course, Lee, but, you know, I've met some great people all over the world and uh, what? And many of them are lifelong friends. And that's a great thing about Facebook these days, I suppose, actually, that you actually keep in touch with these people at arm's length. But you know, still people from way, way back in my errata career who who are now on Facebook. So it's, we can kind of maintain a contact with each other, which you couldn't have done it previously before social media. Yeah, definitely. So that's yeah, yeah, especially that it turns it into a 
you know, you've got the whole world in your in your phone, haven't you? You can see what these people are up to, and yeah, it's brilliant. Well, I think that that brings us to a nice little close there. Um, thanks for giving us the time um, to share your story and your journey. I think uh, a lot of the listeners at uh, on the podcast, all uh, appreciate hearing about the uh, the legendary Alan Forrest, whose name comes up far too often when I seem to be in different rooms. But um, obviously, you're a, an, a known character out there and a, a liked character. Don't know how you manage that one, Alan, but well done. It's <laughs> trying to be nice to people. That's all. That, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really, really easy. Really, just be nice to people. That's it. Your mum will be proud, even though you haven't got a proper job. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she, she says I'm in safety. Yeah, nice excellent well that's uh that's brilliant alan and uh once again thanks uh thanks for taking the time to sit down and have a chat with me right thanks for having me on lee and uh you're good uh well done with the podcast i'm sure it's uh interesting to various people in various ways um keep on doing the good work and i'll see you when i see you whenever we're allowed to travel again if ever yeah definitely mate we'll definitely catch up Thanks, Alan. That was awesome catching up with you. Always great to sit down and have a chat with you. Be great to do it face to face again soon when some borders open and everything sort of nearly gets back to normal. Really good to hear about how it all started, how you got into the industry all those years back, why you got into it. So, yeah, thanks for your time there. For you guys listening in, you can find us on uh, Facebook if you want to have a chat, Rope Access Tips, Tricks and Chats. Don't forget to uh, subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest downloads. We're coming out weekly with some tips, maybe some tricks, some chats. So, yeah, definitely follow us there. Or you can jump on our website. We've got all the information on there. You can send us questions if you've got anything. Ratak.net. But anyway, for now, stay safe. I'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers.